Dave from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerd, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. Hey, Darren, how you doing? Hey, John Trumbull, how are you? Happy almost Halloween there. Yeah, this is actually, uh, yeah, this is going to be going up about a week before Halloween. Uh, but since SNL is back with a new episode for the 29th, we decided to do a Halloween-themed movie for this week. Spooky. Spooky. Booga, booga, booga. And we have a special guest joining us because, I mean, this is a movie that it really needs three people covering it. <laughs> it's a three-man job. It's a three-man job. Uh, so we have our buddy uh, from the I Love Rock and Roll podcast and a very funny stand-up comedian, uh, Mr. Ken Krantz. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks hey, welcome, Ken. Yeah, Ken, good to have you again. Third time, third timer. Yeah, we were just uh, reminiscing before we started recording. Uh, you've been on uh, about the Keegan Michael Key episode of SNL, which you actually uh, got to attend the taping of, and you joined us uh, last year when we. We're doing a memorial episode for Norm Macdonald, and we covered his movie Dirty Work. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and yeah, and we, how do we decide to have you on for this one again? Did you just suggest this one to us? I can't remember. No. One of you posted about the movie, and I just commented, like, oh, I saw that in the theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was me, because we'll get into it, but like, I posted. So basically, this this infamous movie we're going to talk about, it was so terrible and infamous that there's actually now a podcast solely dedicated to the making and production of it and how everything went wrong. I, I believe it's called How Not to Make a Movie. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't think we've said what the movie is yet, though. So we should say uh, we're covering Tales from the Crypt Presents Bordella of Blood, starring Dennis Miller, uh, Erica... Elenak and uh, Angie Everhart. Yeah, uh, this movie came out August 16th, 1996. Um, had a budget of like two and a half mil. It made some money. It made like five mil. But yeah, th- I mean, this movie is pretty widely regarded as being just a horrible bomb of a movie that um, pretty much destroyed a trilogy because, um, as I think we talked about on the last episode, uh, this this came out at peak Tales from the Crypt. Uh, for those that are, I'm sure all you youngsters who may not know, Tales from the Crypt was a show on HBO that basically told like a like a standalone horror stories mm-hmm. around each episode. It's kind of like a modern day uh, Twilight Zone or a, you know Black Window, uh, like Window, Black Mirror, right type of thing. And it was based on a comic book from EC Comics uh, from the 1950s, and they always had these horror stories that were hosted by this uh, character called the Crypt Keeper, and they, they had these gruesome twist endings, but they still had a sense of humor about them, and the, the show kind of followed in that, uh, in that sense. And, and we had, they had a lot of high-profile filmmakers and a lot of stars working on the show, like uh, Richard Donner was produced on the show, Joel Silver, uh, Walter Hill. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of impressive people worked on Tales of, uh, of the Crypt uh, over the years. Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, for its day, it was actually a kind of a big deal, this show. Like, I remember a lot of people were into it, and a lot of people liked it. Yeah, it was it was kind of like the the in-show to do for a little while. It was. Yeah. 
So, uh, like, so the fact that this show was so big and popular, of course, they were like, hey, let's make some movies all based on this. You no, know, we got this this, uh, this brand that has some little name recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, first movie came out was called Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight. Yeah. That did well. Mm-hmm. So they now then they came out with this movie, Bordello of Blood. This yeah. movie did so badly, they decided, hey, you know that third movie we were going to do? Uh, let's not do that. Yeah, yeah. So this was disappointing. And this, we did we did some research. I listened to some episodes of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, which some of the makers of the film, um, uh, Gilbert Adler and uh, A.L. Katz did. And they, they talked to a lot of people involved with the production. They, they told some behind the scenes stories of this. And they, this isn't originally the film, the film that they were originally planning to make. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, this screenplay was actually written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, the duo that brought us, I mean, one of the greatest movies of all time, Back to the Future. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, like, I believe they wrote this just as they got out of college. This was gonna, they wanted to make, like, a kind of a schlocky grindhouse, you know, a, a type of movie, like a black exploitation kind of film, exploitation mm-hmm. film, where it's like, oh, let's, a, a, a whorehouse full of vampires. Yeah, so, they- <laughs> They wrote this back in the 70s, like when they were right out of film school. And apparently, uh, you know, it was it was never made. They wrote it back in the 70s. And uh, in the in the 90s, Robert Smekas was he had a deal with Universal and he was considering leaving Universal to go for the DreamWorks, which had just started up at that time. And Universal really wanted to sweeten the pot and and uh, make Robert Zemeckis want to stay at Universal, so they promised him that they would make this old spec script of his. Um, so I guess he would have seen a little money out of that, and and whatever, easy paycheck for him. So so he ended up staying at Universal, and so they they dropped their plans to film another movie. Uh, what was, what was that movie called? I, I don't have the title. I don't know. I don't know what it was called, but it was supposed to be like. Yeah. Okay. I've got it here. It's, it was called dead easy, uh, AKA fat Tuesday. And they were, they were at the point of like scouting locations for it. And then like something like three weeks before they were going to go into production, they said, uh, no, you're doing this movie Bordello of blood instead. Yep. Oh boy. So, well, listen, I must say this, by the way, like, I, they were, of course, they were upset because they thought that they were doing this one project and then Bordello of Blood, with, which is like such a schlocky title. Yeah. But the concept of a Bordello filled with vampires, I think it's like, it's a good premise. I mean, look at, uh, look at, um, From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, it's it's like honestly, they they had the right idea. This just the finished product was Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's honestly not that different of a premise from from Dust Till Dawn, which I understand was at one point also considered as a as a Tales from the Crypt movie. Uh that's a movie that uh, Quentin Tarantino did with uh, Robert Rodriguez uh, yeah. with, and George Clooney and Selma Hayek. And you know, and that's a that's a fun schlocky movie. Um I remember seeing that in the theaters back in the 90s with my buddies and we we had a blast uh we we had uh at oh, spoiler for from dust till dawn i remember at the end of the movie because there's a, there's a strip club that turns out to be populated by vampires 
And at the end of the movie, they they uh, put holes in the walls of this place, and sunlight is reflecting in off the disco balls there, and then it, all the vampires start exploding. And when that happened, my buddy uh, Lawson immediately started singing "Burn, Baby, Burn, Disco Inferno," and and most of our row joined in for it. So yeah, we had we had a good time at that movie. Uh, this movie, not so much. Not so much. So uh, I don't know. Well, here, well, let's get into this. Um, uh, Ken, like you said, you mentioned you saw this film in the theaters, right? So like, were you? I mean, are you a big horror movie guy? Um, are you a big Tales from the Crypt guy? Like, what What this, made you want to see this? This did have everything. I'm a big horror movie guy. I liked Tales from the Crypt, actually. Somebody in my family, Aaron or an uncle, but somebody somewhere along the line had given me, um, like, a hardcover anthology of Tales from the Crypt comics. Oh, cool. So yeah, so like when I was a kid, I would read them and I loved them and I loved the show. I would watch the So this was like horror, plus it had the name Tales from the Crypt, which, and there was like a few of those around, right? It was like Tales from the Crypt, Creep Show had a couple movies out and uh, yeah, they even tried turning like Nightmare on Elm Street into an anthology series right around that time, but Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, I think like yeah, like Tales from the Crypt. Like once that hit, like you saw, you know, like Tales from the Dark Side, and like some other shows were like kind of trying to do like a Tales from the Crypt type show. Right. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was kind of a trendy thing in the mid '90s to have like those anthology shows. But uh, yeah, the, there were uh, EC. They basically made their name in horror comics. Uh, they had they had Tales from the Crypt. And lots of other comics. And then they actually got in trouble in the 50s. Um, some people were linking these horror comics to juvenile delinquency. And there were actual congressional hearings about it. And that's how the Comics Code started. Which was basically... When, the, when they came up with the Comics Code, it was, it was basically to drive EC Comics out of business. Just saying, like, you can't do stuff like they're doing in these horror comics you can't feature vampires you can't feature zombies you can't do the, you know you you can't present law enforcement in a bad light and they and you can't have drug use or you know, all this stuff and you can't basically it was like preventing them from doing any horror comics and then so ec ended up rebranding and they actually eventually came out with mad magazine it was the same uh editor and publisher um, of William Gaines, and his his name still appears on the Tales from the Crypt show as uh, the, like a producer, I think. And By the way, Mad Magazine, I think, was a way worse influence. Yeah, on, exactly. on juveniles than than a horror comic ever could have been. Oh yeah, no, a Mad Magazine. I mean, they totally had the last laugh because Mad Magazine taught at least two generations of kids to question authority and be have a healthy irreverence for stuff. And yeah. yeah. And yeah, like you said, it did way more damage to America's youth than horror comics ever did. Um, here, here. So, but, so I went, I went, I love horror movies. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've always been a big Saturday night live fan. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always uh, like sarcasm 
is is uh, right in my wheelhouse. So I always loved Dennis Miller. I always thought Dennis Miller was great. Um, so for this, this checked a lot of boxes, horror, comedy, yeah. uh, you know, Saturday Night Live. So I, I was very, I remember being excited to see this. Yeah. I actually saw this in the theaters too, back in, in 96. Um, and yeah, I was, I was still like a Dennis Miller fan at that point. And I think I had a little thing for, uh, Erica Elenak. So you know, I think I think I caught a matinee or something like that. I don't remember liking it at all, but mm-hmm. I did see this back in the day. Darren, this was your first time through with the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not like you guys are braver than I am. I'm not a huge horror movie guys. I don't know, like something about like movies where people get stabbed and bit. I don't. I could do. I could deal like with maybe like uh, psychological thrillers. But yeah. straight up slasher horror movies, I, I get it. I'll admit I'm a bit of a fraidy cat. So, yeah. yeah but, uh, but, yeah, this is my first time seeing it. But, you know, like you guys, I was a big Dennis Miller fan of, in high school back in the day. I, I, saw, I listened to his, uh, what was it, the Off-White album? Yeah. I, I listened to that quite a bit. And, like, now that I think about it, part of me thinks that maybe I liked his comedy so much because that's what I th- thought, like, a smart, intellectual comedian was supposed to like sound like and act like like oh he's using all these big words and like he don't care like but but yeah but like i was a big dennis miller fan back in the day you know you know as college as time went on and i got into college i kind of drifted away from him and after he sort of turned his uh his uh, political leanings to a certain direction I, i kind of veered away from that but yeah for a while i was into dennis miller yeah, yeah. I, I was a big fan of his in, in the 80s, certainly. And then that kind of carried over into the 90s. And then I kind of tapered off him, like you said. But yeah, I remember the Off-White album being a good comedy album. I haven't listened to it in ages, but hopefully it holds up. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think like the re- that's probably the reason why like uh, the producer, Joel Silver, who produced this movie, really wanted Dennis Miller to be in this film because... Uh, again, I did a little research, and apparently, um, uh, Katz and Adler, who who wrote the screenplay, and uh, Adler was directing it, uh, Gil Adler, mm-hmm. who this is his first film he ever directed. I think before this, he was like producer on Tales from the Crypt, so he worked on Tales from the Crypt, but he never directed before. And, well, he directed episodes. Oh, he directed episodes, right? His first feature film, and he wanted uh, Daniel Baldwin for the lead role for the the private detective. Yeah, and uh, he also wanted Robin Givens to play uh, the part of Lilith. Yeah, but uh, which is much better casting, by the way. So much. I mean, I could see that movie working. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but Joel Silver apparently also insisted on Angie Everhart because he produced the movie Fair Game with Cindy Crawford, and so he was like, "Oh, supermodel actresses, that's going to be the next big thing." So he was like, let's get Angie Everhart in here. And they also, Angie Everhart was dating or was engaged to Sylvester Stallone at the time. And Sylvester Stallone was doing the movie Assassins, uh, which Joel Silver was also a producer on. And that was shooting in Seattle. And Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood uh, was shooting in Vancouver. And he was like, if you cast Angie, we can, uh, I can see her every weekend because we'd be <laughs> each other. Which I mean, that's a great reason to cast a movie, right? Yeah. Hey, put my 
Put my girl in this movie. I want to see her on the weekends. Yeah. It's yeah. On a wheel to, to find their three leads. Yeah. It's it's a very randomly cast movie. Yeah. And and nobody has any particular chemistry together. And uh, No, not really. And the fact that Angie Everhart has had little to no acting experience at all. Yeah. It's and, uh I hate to say it but yeah, it kind of shows. It it does kind of show. It's she's I mean she she says every line more or less the same way and she doesn't have any particular personality which when you're the lead villain in the movie that's kind of a problem. Kind of. Yeah, when you're supposed to be like the most evil uh, yeah. being on earth, like the mother of all vampires. Yeah. Yeah, you, you should you should inject some personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, personality. And we have Erica Eleniak, who at that time I'd say best known for Baywatch. Uh, she was she's also in Under Siege. She's like the lead actress in Under Siege. Um, but at the time they were doing this movie, she was like, "Oh, I don't want to do any sort of." She didn't want to do any more roles like trading on her sex appeal. She wanted to be taken more seriously as an actress. And so they rewrote the role for her and made her like more prim and proper person who's like working for a church, uh, uh, like a televangelist character uh, played by Chris Sarandon. That's crazy to me because Erica Laniac doesn't seem like she was such a big star that I would have uh, taken any of her demands. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if she had come and been like, hey, because originally the, she was supposed to play a former stripper. Right. And, you know, which is a little more uh, Tales from the Crypt speed. Yeah. And she said, uh, no, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to play this role again as a stripper. And you'd think they would have been like, oh, okay, then we'll just go get, you know, like we'll get... Uh, Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Yeah, but... we cast literally anyone else who is willing to do what the part requires. Like, like our lead actress can't even act. You don't hold the cards that you think you do. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Yeah, I guess they thought she would bring some of that Baywatch following or something. I, but yeah, I, it is a, a bit of a head scratcher because I mean, she's perfectly fine, but it's like, yeah, it, was she that big of a deal? It's not like she was like. Pamela Anderson, because Pamela Anderson was the phenomenon. She was the big breakout from Baywatch. Right. Um, so, yeah. She wants to be taken seriously as an actress, which I can appreciate. Yeah. But it's like, it's a Tales from the Crypt movie. Yeah. Settle down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, they even say on, on the uh, How Not to Make a Movie podcast, they were like, did the title of the movie not tip you off? It's called Bordello of Blood. It's kind of obvious what type of movie they were making. Um, and apparently they were going to do a twist in the film where it was revealed that before she started working for the televangelist, her character was a porn star. Um, well, that's what it was, right. Yeah, yeah. And they and they were, she was going to have been like a uh, a plus size porn star. It was called, who, was, who went by the name Chubby O'Toole. And and you can see like a remnant of the that in the movie. Like when Dennis Miller first meets her, he's like, 
hey, do I know you from somewhere? And they were going to reveal later on that he had seen her film. Oh, that's what that was a joke that never paid off. I exactly. That was that was, a, that was a setup for a joke. I don't know why you, you, they didn't cut the setup from the movie <laughs> if you're not going to have the payoff. Uh, yeah. And and when she's in his office, she pulls out a, a poster that says like Chubby O'Toole in whatever it was. I don't know if we saw the title, but and she's like, oh, this is disgusting. So, uh, yeah, apparently she was supposed to be a former porn star, but I guess they didn't do that either because Erica Eleniak wasn't on board. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Well, I mean, that's as weird as that is. It's nowhere near as weird as how Dennis Miller got cast in this film because, like, I don't know. Like, I think I, tw- I, I hinted at it last time in the last episode, like how Dennis Miller is a misery to work with, and I... All right, well, all right, well, let's just, just dive into it. Because apparently, like, Joel Silver, the producer, was really gung-ho about having Dennis Miller in this film. And Dennis Miller didn't want to do it. Right. At all. Yeah. And so he kept asking him, and he said no. And then, just to appease him, Dennis Miller said, all right, I'll do it for a million dollars. Right. And I believe uh, Joel Silver went to the studio and said, hey, we can get Dennis Miller for a thousand a million dollars. And the studio was like, hey, fuck that noise. We're not paying a million dollars for Dennis Miller. Get out of here. Yeah. So the, the uh, Joel Silver cut $750,000 from the special effects budget to hire Dennis Miller. I mean, and when you have a movie where the climax revolves around exploding vampires and there's a, like a lot of gore and people ripping out hearts and and, you know, getting their heads chopped off and stuff. Do you really need a big special effects budget for that? Like, that blows my mind. The, the man re- said to himself, I'd rather have a movie with subpar special effects than have a movie without Dennis Miller. Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, well, I'm bringing you know, the Dennis, Dennis did that move. You can't fault him where it's like, uh, you know, he didn't want to do it. He thought it sounded like a shit idea. So I'm just going to throw out an absurd amount of money. Yeah, exactly. And then if they say yes, at least I'm getting an absurd amount of money. But you think that the fact that they said yes would have maybe made him a little easier to work with? Like, what, like what, if you came back to me like, all right, you got your million bucks. Uh, I would I would be like, OK, I'm going to be I'm going to be pretty easy to work with from here on. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would be the the most pleasant person to work with if you gave me a million bucks. Right. Uh, Bordello of blood. I would, I, I would be like, I would stay late. I would, I would arrive early. I would be nice to everyone on the crew. Um, I'd bake cookies for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, but this this dude is uh, he he's filming the Dennis Miller show at the same time. Right. So on Fridays, he has to be out by noon. <laughs> and then that's causing the cast and crew to have to work on weekends. Right, because he, he shot Dennis Miller. Was it Dennis Miller Live or whatever the show he was doing for HBO? Maybe maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Uh, De- he was doing Dennis Miller Live on Fridays. Um, so, yeah, so he'd have to leave the set early. So they had to. And that that sort of shifted their weekends to like I I think, you know Monday to Tuesday or something like that. Um, so the crew couldn't see their families on weekends, um, 
Yeah. Already. And, he then, there. and then to boot, um, even with this schedule that they've worked around him. Yeah. He can't show up on set on time or sometimes at all. Like yeah. he just wouldn't show up. He'd be like, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing. So the script supervisor had to stand in for him in a lot of days, which uh, didn't endear him to the actors because they're like, oh, I'm here, but the fucking lead of the movie can't be here. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, and on top of that, and then and then and then, I believe it was like on the first day of shooting when Dennis Miller read the script and he talked to the director and he was like, hey, uh, I see my lines here. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I'm just going to like riff and do a lot of ad-libbing throughout most of it. I'm going I'm to improv a good chunk of it. And he did, um, much to the chagrin of the filmmakers, because when Dennis Miller would improv lines, he would leave out stuff that was like key to the plot of the movie. Yeah. Wow. Right. And then when the script supervisor would stand in for him when he didn't bother to show up on film, the script supervisor couldn't keep track of his ad libs. Like there was no, there was nobody, uh, there was nobody uh, worrying about. I, mean, I guess they were worried about continuity, but yeah. there wasn't anything they could do about it. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> wow. It, it, it's nuts. It's nuts. Um... Yeah. And I think also to, on top of that, I think they also mentioned that, uh, the crew that they have working with them in Vancouver, they were like uh, pretty inexperienced. Like I think uh, Adler wanted to bring his own people that right. he's worked with on the show, but I forget why they shot in Vancouver. I think no, I remember this. Okay, they shot in Vancouver basically to like piss off the unions. Like Joel Silver had some feud with like the Los Angeles unions, so he he basically located this film to Vancouver out of spite. And the other film they were planning to do uh, was going to be shot in New Orleans. It was, it was like, you know, in the, in the Bayou sort of thing, which honestly would have made sense for this movie too, yes. <laughs> because it, they're going for like a Southern Gothic sort of thing. Um, you like, you know, the, the bordello, which is in the movie is like also a mortuary. It looks like this old, southern plantation thing so it would make total sense to shoot it in orleans and they were they were shooting in vancouver and they were shooting it in vancouver in the summer and there's only like about six hours of darkness in vancouver and there's a lot of night shoots you're making a vampire movie most of your movie is going to take place at night so they only had about six hours of night instead of 12 hours of night and that's Ugh. a big problem yeah <laughs> didn't know what think to check into that well i mean but but spite <laughs> darren spite <laughs> how else are those los angeles unions going to learn their lesson also can you imagine thinking that you're going to shoot a movie in new orleans which is maybe the most fun city in all of america yeah rich with culture and and like after hours, you know you're gonna be having the time of your life, and then it's like, oh no, we're going to Vancouver instead. <laughs> um, yeah, Rocky wants his girlfriend to visit on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I got beef with the union, so we're shooting in Vancouver. 
And then apparently they talk about this on the the uh, how not to make a movie podcast after they cast Angie Everhart to keep Sly Stallone happy. Sly Stallone is apparently or allegedly cheating on her <laughs> while he's doing his movie. Oh God! <laughs> and she finds out about this at some point over the course of the movie, and like apparently some of the the uh, Bordello Blood crew found out about it before she did, and it was this whole awkward thing. <gasps> wow! <laughs> so, what a disaster! Have we even mentioned that Corey Feldman's in this movie? And, we have not. <laughs> and that uh, it it in in a career filled with terrible roles, this might be his absolute dog shit worst. Um, yeah, Corey Feldman. Apparently, he came into this movie because, like Richard Donner, who is the producer, uh, he w- he directed The Goonies, which Corey Feldman was in back in the day, and so he was buddies with Richard Donner and he also guest starred on the TV show. And so it was like, Oh yeah. You know, cast, cast Corey Feldman. He'll, he'll be good. He'll do a good job. And I mean, he's decent in this movie. I mean, he, he does what he's required to do. He, he I have, I have a hard time buying Corey Feldman as like a badass. Him and, it, him and his best friend who go to the bordello. Who are, yeah. Oh, we're so badass. Nobody, Nobody can keep us down, but it's like, yeah, you and your best friend are wearing matching nose rings. <laughs> I don't know if he was so much supposed to be a badass as just like a a guy who thought he was a badass, and and I can buy Corey Feldman as that. Oh, okay, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but maybe he was scripted to be a legit badass. I don't know. It, it is kind of unclear. Uh-huh. Yeah, he is like. Uh... He's wearing the costume of a badass. Yeah, but like Corey Feldman, you know, he's he's the brother of Erica Laniac's character, uh, Catherine, I think her name is, and and they're they're clashing, and he goes out to the bar, and then there's a guy at the bar who's like, "Hey, if you guys want to get laid, you should head over to this place on Beaumont Street," and you know, it's they'll they'll do all sorts of outrageous stuff. He goes there; it's a mortuary. He and uh, Corey Feldman and his buddy, they go into a coffin that's, you know, about to be loaded into the the flame thing. I don't know what you call it. Um, incinerator? Incinerator. Yeah. Um, and then and that's like a secret passageway down to like this basement bordello thing. Yeah. As soon as you get there, boobs right in your face. There's there's a giant close up of just a woman's chest and then. Later, it pans up to her face. It's like, oh yeah, she has a face too. <laughs> so, this is what, it knows what type of movie it is. I mean, <laughs> just boobs and ass as, as far as the eye can see throughout this movie. Yeah, uh, that been, if I was in it, that would have been the end of the movie where he was like, oh, just climb into this coffin and there's tons of titties down there. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not getting into a coffin yeah. and hiding through an incinerator. Yeah, just to get laid. Yeah, I, I there. Yeah, I think there are limits. <laughs> there has to be easier ways to see boobs. That's what, yeah. there has to be a better way. Yeah, yeah. and this yeah. this I, thing this was shot in New Orleans. I can just walk exactly, <laughs> exactly. I can buy some you know dollar beads and then see some boobs that way. Right. Um, and also, uh, by the way, the dude that directed them to the bordello, uh, I believe it's Jenkins. That dude chews up the scenery 
Like, I've never seen an actor chew of scenery before. He, like, to say he plays it over the top is an understatement. Yeah. You know, you know how it's played? It's played like, like a comic book. Like, that's how it probably is when you're reading the comics and you're like, oh, this guy's out of his mind and over the top. Right. When you actually see it filmed, it's just laughable. Yeah. It's like almost like Gary Busey. Like, he goes, you know, you're going to see the hottest women, best goddamn piece of ass in the world. Like, it's, yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, what is he doing? He's laughing maniacally after every, I would have been like, I'm not going wherever this dude tells me. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't follow that dude to a second location. You don't, you, you, you say, excuse me, and you go to the men's room and you try to ditch him. <laughs> yeah. You follow him, you're going to wake up in a bathtub of ice with no kidneys. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> in retrospect, that probably would have been a, the better ending for Corey Feldman and his buddy. Mm. Um, but, yeah. And there's there's also a whole prologue before this in Tierra del Fuego, where we get, like, a little backstory on Angie Everhart's character, Lilith, the lead vampire, where this guy's, like, looking for her her corpse and he's got like the four pieces of her heart that he's gone to the four ends of the earth. And I don't know if we really need that prologue, but it's there. I think they're trying to show you how this, the most evil lady who ever lived. Yeah. It's like, I don't know the actor's name, but he's a, he's a little fellow, right? I could say that he's a little person. Yes. And he's got a whole crew of like people that are scared of him. Like, yeah. how does he end up calling the shot? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, we don't get much backstory on that character. But he, like, you know, of course, Lilith comes back to life and she bites everybody and takes takes him over. And then, you know, he's he's like her, her sidekick or her henchman for the movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's... It's a, it, it, this is a very slow movie, too. I mean, it's only like an hour and 26 minutes long, but it takes forever to get going, man. It does. It does. I will admit, though, some, even though like the budget for special effects was cut down, some of, like I, I'll give props to the special effects budget. They were able to do some cool stuff, too, with the, money, with the little money they had. Because like, there is that one scene where... Um, Caleb, uh, Corey Feldman's character, his buddy Reggie, I think, he makes out with that one, uh, you know, prostitute vampire, and then Angie Everhart comes in, and she, like, sticks her elongated tongue down his throat, so far down his throat, like, she punctures out his heart through his chest with her tongue. Yeah. That was... As you do. As you do, you know, hey, uh, things get hot and heavy. Yeah. I was like, all right, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, they are good effects considering the money they had to spend. I mean, some of them are because when you look at um, like her fangs, yeah, look like those like twenty-five cent plastic vampire <laughs> fangs that that you used to buy in like uh, like magic shops. Yeah, mm. yeah, <laughs> those gumball machine fangs. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, I think my daughter has those same ones. <laughs> So, I mean, but it, it 
they do, the movie does know what it is, uh, but it's not as it's not the sort of cheesy fun that you want out of this movie. It's not it's not particularly funny. It's not particularly scary. It's very campy. It was, I, I, I will say this. So I saw that. I guess I it was ninety six. I was like nineteen or twenty when it came out. Uh huh. For for nineteen twenty year old me, I thought that shit was hilarious. Oh, <laughs> like I remember thinking like Dennis Miller had great lines. He was basically just like a weekend update anchor, but like in an action movie. Yeah. Um. I I I thought I remember seeing that in the movie, and like I listen, I knew it wasn't supposed to be great, but I remember thinking like, oh, that was a really fun, funny movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the line when when that dude wants to fight Dennis Miller, and he's like, why don't we step outside? And he was like, ah, oh, no thanks, I already got a blowjob today. Right. Um, I thought that was one of the funniest lines <laughs> ever. Uh, committed to film in my, like I would tell people that, <laughs> that scene was um, but watching it now as a, as a 46 year old dude it was it was not funny doesn't doesn't hit the same way I it did it did not this might it's it's this only the uh, watching it again for you guys only the second time I've seen it in yeah my life. and um, it was and I, I've told people over the years like yeah it was a pretty good movie Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and, and, now uh, you're going to be like ri- writing letters to people. Uh, I would like to rescind my earlier statement on Bordello of Blood. Yeah, dear guy in a bar that I met once in the early 2000s. <laughs> you don't remember me, but we had a conversation about vampire movies. <laughs> I may have vouched for Bordello of Blood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about uh, Dennis Miller's performance. Like he's, he's definitely going for like, like a, almost like a Bill Murray, Chevy yes. Chase type of vibe, like yeah. Fletch. But yeah. I don't know if he quite gets there because I don't know. He's he's definitely going for like you know smartest, coolest guy in the room. Yeah, swaggery kind of dude. But, but it's that's what he's going for. But the jokes are all like fifteen-year-old boy broke. Yeah. So it's like he's he's going for that smartest guy in the room, but he's saying the most juvenile shit. Like, yeah, I mean, when they go to the, the place, the convention center where they're shooting the televangelist thing, he's like, oh, look at this place. It looks like Superman's dad's place on Krypton. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, he's, he's in a white room with lots of big windows. I guess it looks sort of like that. Maybe and yeah. that's sort of I sort of recognize that as a joke. It's not particularly funny, but there was it, that, is, it is a thing that you you have said, Dennis Miller. Yes, <laughs> there was also that one line he he had where when he got when he finally gets to the bordello and he sees all the naked women and he's like, "Oh wow, it's like uh, Larry Flint's id in here." Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the the lines that Dennis Miller improv they stand out like sore thumbs because they're just such Dennis Miller lines. Um, it's the performance isn't without its charm. But I, I, for me, like a little Dennis Miller goes a long way. He he works best in small chunks. I could take about maybe a half hour of sustained Dennis Miller and an hour and a half of Dennis Miller. It just seems like too much Dennis Miller, you know? Right. He's like seasoned salt. Just, just use a little bit. 
Right. That's it's probably why they made it an hour and 26 minutes. Like, yeah. Nobody's going to be able to do 90 minutes of this. So. Yeah. Uh, well, it's if this had been like a half hour like the show, I think it would have been fine. If it, But yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it could have been one episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there, there's about enough plot in there for one episode. Um, you know, like one thing that like totally mystified me was, okay, Dennis Miller, he, he sneaks into the, the bordello, which is like, you know, sacred passageway down to the basement. And then he discovers that they're vampires. By the way, he doesn't discover that they're vampires until like literally an hour into the movie. The movie is two thirds over <laughs> before our lead characters realize they're dealing with vampires. That seems like too late. Uh, <laughs> but after he discovers that and that they're vampires and he has to escape, he somehow knows that he can escape through the fireplace and he like just tosses some water in the fireplace and somehow gets up there. And I'm like, wait a minute, how does he have any idea how to get upstairs again? Cause he was like literally in a coffin. I, I just, I didn't get that. That didn't make sense to me. Yeah. There were a few things that didn't make, did anybody else notice this? Uh, it happened de- definitely more towards the end of the movie. There weren't a lot of establishing shots throughout yes. the film. Uh huh. Like, uh, like, uh, I'll, you know, spoiler, I guess. But like towards the end when the Reverend dies and gets, yeah. gets murked and he tells, uh, Catherine and Rafe's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta get to the, you gotta get to the, the, the ministry, get to the studio, warn the people. Right. They immediately cut to them inside the ministry. Uh, Catherine's on stage. Rafe is behind the camera. They don't show how they got there. They don't show the outside of the ministry to establish their, there's a change in, like a uh, location. It's just, yeah. I don't know. I found it kind of jarring. It was like, Oh, all right. We're just going to, uh, Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we do. And we do see establishing shot of the place earlier in the film. I mean, it's in during the daytime, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, the, yeah, there, there's also a bit towards the end of the movie where, uh, Chris Sarandon's character, the, the televangelist, he goes like, Oh no, holy water won't work against Lilith. And I'm like, what, why? How how do you know this? Because um, yeah. she's like a super vampire. That yeah. doesn't work against. Just, like, I don't know. I did. I did the like, only the only thing that works. She got to cut her heart out and then right. cut it into four pieces. Right, right. But I don't. I didn't get how Chris Sarandon's character knew that. Like he was up on the lore of vampires. Maybe the little fella told him. I guess. Yeah. What they, was what was the? I it, it was a little convoluted. What yeah. was why did the why did Chris Sarandon want to to reawaken the mother of vampires? It was it just to like feast on sinners, like he I was just think, trying to get rid yeah. of. Yeah, I th- I think that was his his motivation. Yeah. See, I thought, but I also yeah, the, 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 his their reason for bringing her back from the dead was kind of unclear. But I do remember her mentioning a line like, "Oh, you guys are making a lot of money." selling the cars of all the sinners I eat. So like maybe that's it too. It's like, it's weird. Sweet, sweet used car. (laughs) So obviously they're rolling in it. They're making like upwards of $4,000 per person, per car. Yeah. Wait, so they were like, you know what would bring in more money? If we could sell cars. (laughs) 
that we don't have to pay for. I, I kind of want to see the movie about vampires running a used car dealership now. <laughs> I think that might be a more interesting movie. You... What, what, what should we do? Should we start stealing cars from our yeah. hometown? Yeah. No, that's insane. We're, we, we, we might get caught. You crazy? <laughs> yeah. What, what we got to do is we got to resurrect the mother <laughs> of all vampires. Right. It's real easy. We just send in this little fella. Uh, we already have her heart in four sections. And He's already done the legwork. It's good. Yeah. And then we bring her to life oh. and we convince her to run this bordello. And then we Start keep sending horny teenagers down there. Yeah. And then she'll eat them and then we'll sell their cars. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's the perfect plan. Really. Yeah. Somebody wasn't like, are you sure we shouldn't just maybe steal them when no i mean it's yeah. it's there's a lot less overhead we don't have to run a bordello we don't have to renovate a mausoleum or, or a mortuary to to set it up yeah we we don't have to build an escape chute through uh through the incinerator down to the basement yeah yeah it's like no no this works better we we resurrect the dead and uh, steal steal the cars of horny teenagers. It's what it's it's almost too easy. What could go wrong? Was like, listen, just hear me out. Let's just let's just try stealing one or two cars and see if that's easy. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, I I really think they missed a bet by not doing used car dealership of blood. I think that. But then they also just had a working laser. In 1996, they had a working laser. Right. So how much money, I, I guess they were just selling so many cars that just, they were like, you know what the church needs? Is used cars, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I know in Dennis Miller now, probably one of those Jewish space lasers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they also, the fact that he's Jewish in the film too, I thought was interesting too, because that doesn't really play too much in the film. Well, his name's Gutman, so I guess we're supposed to immediately realize he's Jewish. I mean, they don't. No, that's I, the only time it comes into play is when one of the like the Lilith opens his uh, his shirt, and you you think he's going to be wearing a crucifix, but he's wearing a star of David. Yeah, and yeah, and at the end of the movie, when um, he takes they take the heart of Lilith to the rabbi, right, to, to divide up. Yeah, I was like, okay, and and he makes a comment about uh, the yarmulke is wearing. He's like, you know, oh, how does how does this fit? Ha ha. Um. Yeah. This <laughs> make my head look fat, cha cha, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I w I will say there there is a good twist at the end of the movie. Like Tales from the Crypt is kind of known for its twist endings, the surprise endings, and I liked. I thought they had a good twist at the end of the movie, and I, I thought I liked how they, they sort of subtly set it up. Um, you know, uh, spoiler alert is like, I mean, we've. Uh, Dennis Miller and Erica Leniak have defeated the vampires. They've killed off Angie Everhart's character, and they've split up her heart. Everything's hunky dory. And then they go out to the car again, and then Erica Leniak sees. She's liking the cut of Dennis Miller's jib. Bah, 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 bah. 
yeah, he's like finally worn her down over the course of the movie. And he's like, oh, hey, you're coming on to me all of a sudden. Huh? What's going on here? And and, uh, you know, they start making out in the car and he like hikes up her skirt a little bit. And that's when we see that she'd been bitten by Angie Everhart's character. And she's got like the two fang marks on her inner thigh. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. He, he says to her, he's like, oh, what's, uh, what's, oh, I like your perfume. What is that? Yeah. And she's like, that's not perfume. It's sunscreen. It's sunscreen. And then, and then he sees the marks and then she bites him. Yeah. So it does end on a happy note. It does end <laughs> it with does end everybody with... in this miserable movie dead. Yeah. Yeah. But, it does end with Dennis Miller becoming the undead. So it is a happy ending. Um, Can you imagine uh, Dennis Miller for the rest of eternity? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but also, like, sunscreen. So so sunscreen will keep vampires alive yeah. in, the, in, in the daytime. And she's the first one to figure it out. Well, no, like the, the overacting dude, uh, he, he we see him earlier in the movie. He's at the, the funeral. He's wearing sunscreen, too, so he can go out in the daylight. I don't know why the nurse who assaults Dennis Miller in the hospital doesn't think of that or doesn't know about that. Because, like, he he just, like, rips open the back of her dress and then she, she's just burned up by the rise yes. of the sun. Um, and and also that would be... works there for some reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that would be the very first thing they tell you. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, you know, you, you just made the big transition. You're a vampire now. Right. Probably the most helpful thing you need to know is that you can go outside if you wear sunscreen. That's <laughs> an important safety tip. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's not even, it's more important than avoiding skin cancer. It's like you could literally explode if you forget this. So, yeah, you'd think they would lead with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, while we're talking about, can we talk about that cameo in the hospital? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after the vampire blows up uh, a patient in another bed, it's she just like gets up and she's like, "I knew I should have taken that private room." And it's Whoopi Goldberg apparently playing herself. She's just in the hospital in this place for some random reason. Um, apparently, this came about because Whoopi Goldberg was friends with the people making the movie. And she was like, hey, I want to help you out. I want to do a day on this movie and like do a cameo. Uh, I, I, I think she said, I, I, you don't even have to pay me. I, and then they, they were talking about this on the podcast. And they were saying that after they made the deal, they started getting calls from Whoopi's people saying like, oh, well, you got to shoot her out in like six hours. Then you got to shoot her out in like four hours. And like they finally made the arrangements so that like when Whoopi arrives on set and is ready to shoot, we will drop whatever we're doing and just shoot with her and then get her out as quickly as possible. And they got her, they got, they shot her out in like two and a half hours. And Whoopi Goldberg was said to them was like, well, I thought I was going to be with you for the whole day. What's, I mean, why are you shooting me out so quickly? Don't you have anything else you want to do with me? And they were like, we've been getting calls from your people for weeks saying how quickly we have to get you out. And she's literally in the movie for like, Five seconds? Yeah. I heard her character was in the hospital because she almost died of embarrassment. <laughs> hey oh. It's it's just such a random thing. Um Yeah. 
I mean, I guess it's kind of cool that she's in it, but it, it is like, what? I don't, what is this? It's it's just more random than funny. You're just like, oh, hey, what the hell is Whoopi Goldberg doing there? And then she's gone before you have time to think about it any further. So it's it's really weird. Very random cast in this movie. Very random. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do like the the big climax where Dennis Miller and Chris Sarandon they charge into the bordello with super soakers filled with holy water, and they're blowing up all the vampires. I'm like, okay, that's kind of clever. That's that's neat. That's a, I don't believe that Chris Sarandon could get very far with just a squirt gun, but um, yeah, like I will admit that scene was kind of cool with them coming in, uh, shooting up all the vampires while ballroom blitz plays. I was like, all right, that's kind of cool. Yeah. The, sound, the soundtrack was actually, I meant to mention that. Yeah. The soundtrack to the movie was the best part. There was a handful of songs in there that, that went, uh, that was the best example. But a yeah. handful of songs suited their scenes very well. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they've, they've got, uh, let's see, I'm looking at the soundtrack now. They got uh, All Right Now by Free. They got Jailbreak by Thin Lizzy. Still Loving You by The Scorpions. Not bad. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a good hard rock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but see, that's the other thing, too. Like, because, like, and the scene before them coming in, he's in the hospital, and, um, you know, he kills a vampire. Whoopi Goldberg says, hey, I'm trying to sleep here. Right. And then immediately it cuts to him inside the bordello, crashing his car through it, saying, hey, I got a, I got a super soaker full of holy water. Let's go get him. Yeah. I was like, how, how did you get that super soaker full of holy water? Like, where, where was, where'd you get that? Well, I mean, I can buy that he gets a super soaker. It might be like a little more difficult to scrounge up a priest on short notice to bless the, the water and turn it into holy water. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weird. I'm I'm still scratching my head over like it's we literally they don't realize they're dealing with vampires until an hour into an hour twenty six minute movie. Um, that it's, he he should realize that like maybe forty minutes in. Yeah, he's he's a uh, it's not the best detective because I mean because that's the fun stuff is like when they realize oh, oh we're dealing with this weird stuff and and at one point like Erica Laniac she's she decides to go on this crusade against uh, sex work and she goes to like a strip club and Angie Everhart's there and and she's like interviewing her and she's like oh you've got your hands on this too. And then she's looking at the footage later and Angie Everhart doesn't show up on film because <gasps> vampire. And th- and that's when everybody realizes. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. It's it's weird because like she works for Evangelist, but then like halfway through the movie, it's like she's a reporter or something. Yeah. I think she just basically, it's like she says like, hey, preacher, I'm going to do a expose on this, the seedy underbelly of our town. Right. I was like, oh, do you, do you have a journalism degree? Or, like, you just have a wild hair up your ass to do this? Uh, all right. I don't know. It was weird. I mean, it would have made more sense if they'd established her as a reporter at the beginning of the film. I mean, I don't, I don't know. My first, uh, if, if I was a journalist for that church, my first assignment would have been like, hey, how do we get a laser? <laughs> Yeah. Do you need a real laser for your church thing to shoot the plastic devil that pops up behind your your big cross? 
Why it do just you... feels dangerous. Yeah, well, that's just asking for trouble. Why do you need a real laser for that? Couldn't you just have a flashlight? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it breaks up in some predetermined fashion. You don't need to actually destroy it. I mean, I knew they had that laser. Like, as soon as I saw them do the laser in that rehearsal, I was like, all right, so that's going to come into play late and in, come into play later. Right. But it is weird how they have an actual dangerous laser that can like apparently burn things and people just kind of sitting yeah. around their mega church like it's that. Like, you're not Goldfinger. You don't really <laughs> need a laser. You're not, you don't have to kill James Bond later, but it came in really handy because they had to kill a vampire and burn yeah. a cross into her back. So yeah. Um, I need freaking sharks with freaking lasers on their heads. And by the way, Into the vampire. Yeah. With his foot while he's while he's hiding. Yeah, while he's handcuffed to something. Um Yeah. It seems like it would have been a little messy. Yeah, yeah. It's uh by the way, like towards towards the end of the film when uh, uh Lilith kills the guy in the control booth. Um and Erica Leniak is going like, oh, Jonas, Jonas, what's going on? And Lilica, uh, Angie Everhart goes, Jonas doesn't work here anymore. She takes this weird dramatic pause with her anymore. And I'm like, that is a bad line reading. Man. It's like, why did you pause there? It's not, it's not scary. It's not fear. It's not funny. It's. I'm just like, why did you say it like that? Why did you not get another take of that? Yeah, it, there was nobody giving her notes. After watching that movie, I was like, oh, Harvey Weinstein wasn't the worst thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you think somebody would have sat her down and been like, listen, uh, you're doing great, but... Yeah. Um, you're actually pretty terrible. Like we need to work on some of these line readings. Well, uh, and apparently Sylvester Stallone was coaching her for at least part of this movie too. Like she would, like she would come back and she'd like work the scenes with Sly. Um, I don't know why that didn't get her great results, um, but you know, and they and they kind of have to work against that too. <laughs> um, but, wow, this this movie it it's a weird freaking movie, man. Um, like I say, not not really, not especially entertaining, not especially funny, not especially scary. It's just kind of there. It slogs along very slowly, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I was I was reading that Angie Everhart says that it's become this uh, cult movie. Yeah, and I don't I don't think that's actually true though. I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't see it. I, I never hear anybody talk about this movie. Yeah. Well, except you talking about it, talking it up in bars with random dudes in the early 2000s. Right. Well, it's been a while. I haven't heard anybody talk about it since I was 28. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, Rocky Horror or anything like that. But I can, I can understand it having a cult following if it does have any. Like, I mean, like overall, I thought this film. It definitely wasn't as bad as it was as I thought it'd be, but it's definitely like a lot more campier 
and cheesier than uh, I thought it'd be. It, it definitely, I can see you getting a bunch of your friends together, getting some drinks, and just watching this film and you know just laughing at it and making jokes, uh, MST3K style at this film. It, it would be more enjoyable with alcohol. I mean, I just watched it at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Oh, so I'm sorry. Maybe not the best time to watch it and maybe not the best condition. This movie, by the way, has a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes, 31% audience score. So, yeah, I don't I don't see this being a big cult movie. Um, there, are some, there are some funny reviews of it, though. Um, Lawrence Van Gelder from the New York Times, he writes, Vampires aren't the only things in Bordello of Blood that can't stand up to daylight. Neither can the plot. Hey-oh. I like that one. Uh, uh, Burn. Walter Shaw from Film Freak Central says, in the history of active sabotage, this one's right up there. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, th- I mean, this movie is definitely, I don't know. I don't know if I've s- seen anything like it. It's just like... It is definitely a movie. It's it, de- is, it is definitely moving pictures that play for about an hour and a half. It is undeniably a movie. Can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, overall, I thought this film, like I said, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It was actually like the behind the scenes of how this film got made was probably more entertaining than any actual film. Like to learn that everybody hated Dennis Miller yeah. filming this uh, filming this thing. It's the director, I think. I believe I remember reading like the director got into shouting matches with him. Yeah. Uh, he pissed off Corey Feldman at some point and they got into it. I wish there was footage of that. I'd love, I would pay money to see footage of that, of Corey Feldman facing off against Dennis Miller. Um, yeah. Cause I think like what happened is like, from what I understand from hearing from a, like a behind the scenes video, like Corey Feldman says, yeah, like, you know, there was this one thing I saw where he was walking by some crew members on set and the crew members was like, oh, hey, Dennis, how's it going? And Dennis was, like, busy reading. He was like, oh, yeah, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. And, like, that was enough to cheese him off because, like, he's, he saw, oh, he's creating, like, a really not great environment through this throughout this film. And, like, he was like, oh, who does that? Who does that? Just, just brush off people like that. That's gross. <laughs> I'm still laughing that somebody was, like, got greenlit to make a movie. That being Dennis Miller and Angie Everhart. Right, yeah, because that's, and it's, yeah. Uh, oh, I found another good review. This is uh, Gilbert, at, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's that's the director. Matthews uh, <laughs> from the Los Angeles Times, he writes, uh, this is the version of Dracula that Bram Stoker would have written with the collaboration of Mel Brooks and the Marquis de Sade, de Sade over drinks at Hooters. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, a wordy one. That sums it up. That's like the Dennis Miller review. <laughs> A Dracula, the Bram Stoker would have written with the collaboration of Mel Brooks and the Marquis de Sade over drinks at Hooters, Chuck. <laughs> it's like Nosferatu meets the Zucker Brothers, huh? Ah, yeah. Um, it, when Dennis Miller finished shooting his part for this movie, he went over to the director, uh, Gilbert Adler, and he like he, he gave him a hug and he was like, hey, thanks. Um if you ever want to have dinner with me and my wife, you and your wife, uh, you know, I'd love, I'd love to set that up. And Gilbert Adler was just like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not having dinner with you. I'm not ever talking to you again. 
<laughs> and <laughs> get the fuck away from me. I just I just love that you know he was that <laughs> with Dennis Miller. He was just like, no, we're not friends. You're a dick. Goodbye. <laughs> I actually remember seeing a behind the scenes thing, or or maybe it was, I think it was some like upcoming movies thing on Comedy Central that Dennis Miller was hosting. And at the end of this, he was he was plug he plugged this movie. He gave the obligatory plug, and I just remember Dennis Miller going, "I don't think you're going to see me at that Dot Chandler Pavilion next year." <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, I th- I think he knew that this movie wasn't going to do great, uh, and it wasn't going to do great things for his career. Uh, yeah, I mean, he still got some acting work after. Like, he, I mean, I think before this, he was in uh, the movie The Net with Sandra Bullock, and then after this, he did. I, um, I'd forgotten that. Holy shit! Remember The Net? I remember The Net. I remember one moment in The Net making me laugh out loud in the theater because it was so freaking stupid. I'd forgotten that Dennis Miller was in that, though. Oh, geez. We could do the net sometime. We could do the net. And then I think after this, he was in uh, Murder at 1600 with Wesley Snipes. He, he had, like, done some films here and there. Like, it didn't totally kill his yeah. career, but it was didn't do it no favors. Yeah. I don't think he does much acting anymore, though. No, I think, you know, too much money to be made in uh, right-wing ranting. Yeah. By the way, did you notice like, okay, towards the end of this movie, like um, Erica Laniac, her, her character's prisoner, and then Lilith, the va- lead vampire lady is uh, sort of ogling her. And then she, she like starts feeling her up, but they, they shoot it. They just, I'm, sh- I'm sure this was shot with a body double because like she's feeling up uh, Catherine, but you don't see Erica Laniac's face at all. So I'm sure they shot that like after the fact because like uh, we got to set up this ending somehow. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, from what I'm reading here on Wikipedia, like Elaniac says that they she had an argument with the producers with right. uh, Joel Silver because Joel Silver really wanted to add a sexy scene between her and Andrew Everhart, which wasn't in the script. And they wanted to like have, they wanted to pump up the sex appeal between the two of them and have like, some, I guess, almost soft core ish type of scene between them. And like, she right. didn't want to do it. So I did probably just put a body double in there. Yeah. They're like, all right, here, you can, you, you, you and your, your bros can whack off to that. I'm not going to, I don't want to do it. Well, it's, and it's pretty obviously not shot with her because I don't think there are even any insert shots of her like reacting to that. And it's just like, well, why would you not have her face in frame <laughs> unless it's not her? Mm. Uh, so it's yeah. This uh, wow, this movie, wow. But, but I do like, like I said, I do like the twist at the end. I think it's a clever twist at the end. I like, like right after Dennis Miller rescues her, and you know we we don't know that she's been bitten yet. And Dennis Miller, he goes like, oh, "Are we? Are you okay? You're so pale." And I'm like, "Okay, that's a that's a decent subtleish setup." Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. That could easy go go over your head the first time you watch it. But it, it, I remembered the ending of this movie. So it popped out to me when I was watching it this time around. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes... I, I hadn't remembered much about this thing. I remembered the ending and I remembered, you know, the super soaker vampires exploding. And that was, that was about it really. Yeah. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, that's, you know, the blowjob joke. That's the thing you write home about. Yeah. I mean, that's poetry right there. I mean, 
remember thinking like that the whole time. Anybody ever wants to play for the Yankees? Have you ever gotten to use that line in real life, Ken? No. Yeah. Problem is, I'm I'm so damn charming and likable. Nobody ever wants to play me. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I bet if you used the line, you could have gotten punched, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, but yeah, Ken, uh, what? Are, so overall, what are your thoughts on this film as a whole? Does it, uh, does it hold up like you, like you remember? Do you find any charm in it at all? Or is it just... No, no. <laughs> I, I, I found it. Uh, I mean, there, there were a couple moments. But um, if, if, you're, if you're a horror fan or a horror comedy fan, I, I think there's thousands of other movies that, yeah. will, that will do the trick. I don't even think you need to like check this one out out of curiosity. No, no. Um, there, there's some interesting stories in the you know how not to make a movie podcast about the making of the movie. I guess it's decent if you've seen the movie and you have a little more context for it, but you don't really need to have seen it. Um, but ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Darren, how 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 did you react to this watching this for the first time? Uh, for the first time, uh, I don't know. It wasn't as again. It wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. It was kind of cheesy, and like I, it had some charm, but like I mean, by by, by no means will I say this is a good movie. Yeah, I would say it's. Yeah, I would put it up there with like a MST three K type of cheesy bad movie. I mean. I mean, Dennis Miller constantly ad-libbing, like, you know, with his, uh, when he walks into the bordello, says, Lucy, I'm home. Yeah. Or uh, that one line when they're, when they try to meet up with uh, Caleb and they go to that warehouse and he's like, oh, I feel like I'm in a bad Tales from the Crypt episode here. Yeah. Yeah. It gets a little meta for, that. that's kind of cute. Um, yeah. But I'm, yeah. But overall, it's not as bad as I thought it'd be, but yeah, it's not. It ain't great. No, no, it's not great. It's it's not. I mean, it's it's. I, I've said this a couple times before already, but you know, not especially funny, not especially scary, not really cheesy enough to be entertaining. Not, not even like especially sexy. I would say it's. Yeah, there's some gratuitous nudity, but you know, I I wouldn't say that there's any moments or any like sort of turn on moments or anything like that, which might be a reason you'd see a movie of this type. I mean, it's it's not as sexy as like say from dusk till dawn or anything like that. I know. Um, yeah, it's no species. No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's better gratuitous nudity in species. So if you want to watch a, a good gratuitous movie, movie from 1996, check out Species. <laughs> um, but, uh, from dusk till dawn was very like kind of the same premise. Yeah, it was done so well. Like it wasn't a bad premise at all. They could have made a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have made a good, fun, cheesy movie for this. I mean, I I think you probably would have needed a little more budget. You wouldn't need better casting. I mean, you know, this is just one of those movies where not a whole lot went right. So yeah, yeah. There there was a better movie in here. We just didn't get there. Nope. Nope. I mean, I definitely think that Daniel Baldwin and Robin Gibbons would have been better casting. I think if you cast somebody else in the Erica Eleniak part and maybe had it be closer to the original conception, I think that would have worked better for the movie. Robin Gibbons would have been perfect. 
Yeah, Robin Gibbons would have been sexy as hell and can actually act. Yeah, and she would have had just the right vibe for it. I feel like, yeah, she would have she would have gotten it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right, and uh, yeah, I guess that's our episode, guys. Thanks again for listening, as always. We should probably uh, maybe uh, check in with the Twitters and see what the people tweeted at us. Say yes, we did get a few responses on Twitter about this. Uh, we got our buddy uh, Bill Brodsky at uh, Bill Brodsky twenty six twenty. He says, uh, "Just to let you know, there actually was a third Tales from the Crypt movie, but it was never released theatrically in the U.S. It was called Ritual. Uh, it's, it came out in two thousand two, and then he quotes this: uh, a third t- Crypt movie was planned on the release of Bordello Blood, but due to the low box office take in of that film." This film's references to the Tales for the Crypt franchise and Crypt Keeper intro and credits were removed until the DVD release. Wow. Mm. So that's that's how toxic the Tales from the Crypt <laughs> franchise had become by that point. Yeah. And uh, Cool Ranch for Life tweeted us saying, uh, you deserve a purple heart for your bravery, sirs. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'd get a purple heart and then we'd just be ripped out of our chests. <laughs> With, yes, by her tongue. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Drew S. Rod uh, at uh, DSIE78 uh, says, Great podcast, fellas. Thank you very much. Two suggestions for movie review for the holidays. Office Christmas Party with Kate McKinnon and Vanessa Bayer. And for Father's Day, Daddy's Home with Will Ferrell. Um, yeah, I think those are both good suggestions. We haven't done either one of those. Uh, yeah, I'd be up for doing either one of those. I haven't seen either one, but they got to be better than Bordello of Blood, right? I haven't seen either, and I'm already saying they're better than Bordello of Blood. Right. Yeah. Same. Same. So, I mean, Ken, thanks very much for joining us for this. Uh, sorry, sorry we didn't have a better movie for you to watch this time around. We'll, we'll try to fix that for next time. And uh, uh, Ken, you've got a podcast of your own, right? I Love Rock and Roll. Yeah, I love rock and roll. If uh, if you're into music and comedy, uh, we interview lots of big um, name musicians and lots of comedians about their favorite bands. Uh, check it out. Actually, the last guest we had had a very cool Saturday Night Live story. Oh, cool. Well, tell us about it. Um, so we interviewed this drummer by the name of Alvin Taylor. And when he was 13 years old, uh, listen how cool this dude's life was. At the age of 13, he played drums for fun, and he was a busboy in a hotel. Mm-hmm. And the hotel had a house band that played on the weekends, but the drummer was an alcoholic and oftentimes couldn't, couldn't perform. So they would let Alvin at 13 sit in on the drums whenever this dude was too sloshed to play. Cool. One night he's playing and uh, with the band and into the lounge walks um, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Billy Preston, and Little Richard. Wow. And Little Richard freaks out when he sees this kid drumming and is like, you look at me in my head. And convinces his mom to let him join Little Richard's band. Listen to who was in his band at the time. It was uh, Little Richard, Billy Preston, and Jimmy James on guitar, who you might not recognize that name. But oh, that, 
I do. Oh yeah, he's the we boss on the radio. <laughs> Um, so he's in a band with Little Richard, Billy Preston, and Jimi Hendrix at 13, and his first gig is opening for Elvis. Wow. Uh, they, open, they open for Elvis in Vegas for his residencies. He opened for Elvis like hundreds of times, I think. But anyway, fast forward through Billy Preston, he appears in the house band on the very first episode of Saturday Night Live to ever air. Oh, um, okay. So he would. He said he was sitting there backstage. Everybody. He said Belushi's dressing room, Chevy Chase, Jane Kirk. All the dressing room doors are open because they're hoping people walk by and talk to them. They're all sitting around talking about like how cool an opportunity this is and how quickly it'll be off the air, but that it's like cool that they got to do it. And he he sat in. He's the drummer in the band on the very first SNL. And he told us if he had never worked another day in his life after that, if he had quit the industry the next morning, the residuals that he's gotten from that would have kept him comfortable for the rest of his life. Wow. wow. Damn. That's incredible. Wow. That's a great story. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This dude played with everybody. He played with uh, George Harrison, Ron Wood, Stevie Wonder. Um, if you're, if you're in the music, it's the, I love rock and roll podcast. Yeah. All right. So check it out folks. And, uh, you can, uh, just check us out on Twitter at SNL nerd show. You can also check out our individual pages on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Trumbull comic. That's T R U M B U L L. And then the word comic Darren, where can the folks find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Darren credible. That's D A R I N credible. Yeah. So go do that. And yeah, let us give us give us more suggestions for movies we can check out on this podcast. We're going to have a, a big chunk of uh, of uh, weeks we have to fill with with movies. So, um, yeah, I mean, let us know what you want to hear us cover on the podcast. And uh, SNL will be back next week with a new episode with uh, Jack Harlow as the host and the musical guest. So. Looking forward to that. Be nice to have the show back. Mm-hmm. So, Darren, you looking forward to that? Oh, I am. Oh, indeed. Uh, Mr. Jack Harlow. Uh, I know little to nothing about him, mm-hmm. so it's going to be uh, quite exciting. Quite interesting. Barely remember when he was on the show before. <laughs> Barely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd have to look that up and see what we said back then. Am I going to do that before next week's episode? Yeah, probably not. Nope. Why Why mess with the spontaneity of it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we'll, we'll see you back there for that for next week. But until then, nerds, nerds out. out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.